Welcome to the Soak by Slush podcast, where we unpack the first principles of building generational technology companies by diving deep into timeless, hard-won lessons with some of the most iconic founders and investors out there. Joining me today is one such founder, in fact, a serial entrepreneur in Guy Pajarni of SNCC. Guy started SNCC with his co-founders Asaf and Danny in 2015, spent four years as CEO, and migrated into his current role of president in 2019. Built duly in Tel Aviv and London, and later in a distributed fashion around the world, SNCC is a platform that enables developers to automatically detect and fix vulnerabilities in their code and stack. Today, SNCC employs 1,200 people and is valued at closer to 8 billion euros. They've got there by raising a whopping 1.3 billion euros from iconic investors like Excel, GV, Kartu, Tiger Global, Edition, BlackRock, and so many more. I want to thank Lucy at Excel for making the introduction to SNCC. And with that, let's dive right in. Hey, Guy, thank you so much for taking the time and being with us here today. Oh, thanks for having me on. Perfect. So to kick off, before Snake, you, you co-founded Blaze.io. And one thing I found interesting, which you referred to in previous interviews, is at Blaze, you were the technical co-founder, complemented by a commercial CEO. And at Snake, the opposite was true. You were the commercial business-focused CEO, complemented by two technical co-founders. So building on that, what are the three most important traits of great co-founders? I think at the beginning, you are building a product more than a business business. And so that naturally almost requires that there will be within the co-founders core technology and product competency. I think that there are very few exceptions. It's quite hard to build a great technology company without any technical or product-oriented co-founder. I think you can make do with only technical co-founders, but you will run into some challenges later on as you scale. I do think a very valuable combo is having some organizational and management skills. So I would say like the first core skill is really around technology and product. The second would be around being able to build a company, hire the right people, knowing how to manage people, knowing how to manage people out. And then the third is just around customer interaction. All sorts of backgrounds are applicable to there. It might be sales, it might be more customer success oriented. And sometimes product people come with a lot of that type of customer success. Fantastic answer. So I did want to ask, though, you mentioned that when joining Snake, you still brought on your your kind of product hat. But let's assume you wouldn't have that competence either. Like you were a totally non-technical CEO. What do you do in the early days? What do you spend your time on? So one, you need to hire a team. It's a bit hard if you're not technical. Most of the people you're going to hire at the beginning are also technical. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know how to hire engineers, maybe that's not terribly valuable. It's only going to be one or two people that you might hire out of that. The second is interaction with customers. Depending on your background and your network and the type of product that can come in many shapes and forms, but oftentimes you have to reach out, take a lot of no's, go and evangelize the product and talk about it. So if you're not technical, then hopefully you have some competence in the domain. And so what you might be able to do is reach out and talk to prospective customers, practitioners in the space around the pain that they're involved and how your product addresses it. And by doing so, you're actually serving a product purpose or product market fit. You're trying to to identify, does this product messaging work? You're almost doing a product marketing type role when you do that. If you can't even do that, I think you should sort of challenge a little bit whether you are the right founder for this type of solution. Makes sense. Totally agree there. But if we take that and we um, abstract that a little bit and we look at the humane side of things, how do great founding teams kind of interact and tick together? First of all, is some form of drive and drive for impact. You know, fundamentally, it's a grind. You need to get through a lot of no's, a lot of problems 
problems, a lot of declines, whether it's in people you're hiring or VCs or customers telling you no, all sorts of unexpected twists and turns on it. Now that drive, I think there are some founders who are truly passionate about a specific topic. So their passion and their drive is focused on their specific subject matters. Others like myself are passionate about impact and maybe are a bit more flex about the area, the domain. And so maybe that's more of a serial entrepreneur type. The second I'd say is problem solving or creativity. At the beginning, you're not running a playbook, you're creating it and you need to be able to combine skills and uh, combine data points to understand the pattern and be able to find solution to how that works. And then the third is perseverance. Sometimes it's because you want to prove yourself. Sometimes it's back to that passion from the mission. Sometimes it's almost like a lack of choice. If you've gotten all in on it and you have to cut through to the other side. So you have to persevere. But the reason, the motivation for persevering, I think is different. And sometimes if you're too stubborn, that could actually be in your detriment. And there are quite a few founders that I know that have gone too far that couldn't understand the signs that say the right thing to do right now is to shut down the company and start something else. Uh, otherwise, you're just wasting your most precious asset, which is time. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on that one. I completely agree that every entrepreneur needs to be gritty and needs to get through the hard times. But then, right, there's a moment where you can go too far and you keep on to like a lingering product that is never going to go anywhere. So in your mind, what are the signs that you need to stop with a business? Like, when does it no longer make sense to continue with the current idea you're, you're pursuing? I don't know if there's a single sign, but I think the one that repeats is lack of progress. Uh, And so if you are facing the same problems now as you were a year ago, and you haven't really substantially improved on any of these key fronts, you might want to take a hard look in the mirror. What is wrong? Is it market timing? Is it because you're just pushing up a hill? Uh, Is it indeed the thing you built is just not resonating? The other piece is to see whether the vanity metric, if you have certain metrics that are succeeding, but other other important ones continuously don't change. You know, for example, you're getting a lot of users, but none of them are purchasing. That's more of a point of evaluation around a pivot than around shutting down the company because you got a part right, you're getting more and more users. Now, whether you need to tweak the journey or whether you need to tweak the destination, that's a hard thing to answer and has to be in a case-by-case. I'll throw one more, which is the fundraising. So I think especially after you've been doing this for a while, if you find yourself on the third time when you're doing some form of an extension of a something just to stay alive, you really have to ask if that's the right thing or should you just call it quits for the time? Extremely interesting and reflective. You talked about lack of progress there. Let's talk about what I suspect was an abundance of progress. So the early days of SNCC. So I want to hear what was the most critical milestone that you hit in the first month, the first quarter and the first year of SNCC? People look at a success story and they like to think that it was always successful. It wasn't the case (laughs) for SNCC. The company was incorporated in July, really kind of formed with a few more people, not just me in September. And by the end of October, we launched a product. We launched a crappy product very, very quickly, the conference uh, with a talk. And so maybe I take that point in time as the as the start. So SNCC's success in general that has accompanied us from the beginning is around users. You know, if you're unaware, SNCC built security solutions for developers. And so developers did pick it up. We got positive traction around people downloading SNCC, running it to test their sort of open source dependencies, vulnerabilities probably took us about four or five months to get to about a thousand registered users. Um, but what we saw was that they were using Snake once to run the test, but they weren't actually putting it into the build. And so we understood it was still too hard for them to put it into the build. We were trying to get developers to do something they weren't doing before. So it was very important that we reduce friction, that we make it easy for them to do it. And so that learning got us to, to building a GitHub app, you know, and, and then understanding says, okay, we need to 
create a next, next, next experience when we're discovered on the web to actually install Sneak on the repository. And then right away, as we're installed on GitHub repositories, it's a continuous relationship right away. We will test your new code changes. We will monitor this repo on a long-term basis. And so now it's the right way to use Sneak and it's even easier than it was before. And there's some friction around giving us access, but otherwise it's good. So I think that path was very helpful in terms of getting even more users. I think at around uh, August, so call it maybe like nine months or something like that from launch, we were at around 5,000, 6,000 users. Uh, so it, it curved pretty well. When we launched the GitHub application, we also GA'd the product and you could now pay us to use it and nobody did. Uh, and so we kept getting users, we kept getting positive feedback. We opened it up and just like trickle of water coming through when we opened the dam. And we started digging in and understanding the difference between our user and our buy. And we learned that developers were ready to start using a security product, but they were not yet in a place in which they would purchase it. And that security people lacked certain capabilities, breadth, features, and such for us to build. And so the subsequent year was really a gradual progress of building more breadth into the product, adding more programming languages, adding security-specific capabilities like governance and such. And that wasn't like a one-hit wonder. We had a practically relevant stream of online users, maybe 10, 20, 30 users paying us you know, 100 bucks a month. But then in March, so this is now a year and a half almost into the existence of the company, we got our, our first 30K deal from like a cloud-native company. And in May, we got a cloud-native acquisition into a larger company to also purchase license. And in August, we got another even bigger acquisition. And that point was probably the curve. About two years in is where we, we managed to not just satisfy the users, but satisfy the buyers and the true kind of hockey stick that kept on kind of curving up started around there. At the very start of the story, you mentioned you launched a crappy beta. And that's a common startup aphorism, right? If you're not embarrassed by the first product you put out there, you're launching too late. But what do you say to the founders who are still worried that putting out something crappy ruins your one shot at getting through to people and people will for, forevermore associate your kind of brand with crappiness? Like, what do you say to people who resist the, the notion that you should launch early and you should launch crappy? So generally, I think the most precious asset you have in life and startups is time. And so I think you should optimize for acceleration, for faster learning, more so than for sort of moments in time. And so the launch moment is important. You shouldn't dismiss it, but it doesn't have to be perfect. And guess what? It's never going to be perfect. If you think that because you yourself in a lab and with some handful of conversations and such, you manage to avoid mistakes around what customers would want, you're misleading yourself. V1 is always going to be crap. And it's also true for your first iteration of your sales process and your first iteration of your marketing campaign, you're going to get some things right and many will be bad. And what you really need to worry about is the process that follows, is how do you get better? Now, what you need to do is you do need to set expectations. If you're putting a product out there that costs $1,000 a head and then people might purchase it and then be disappointed, that's a problem. You want to set the expectations. And therefore, having a free tool that is in beta, that's a bit of a double qualifier there to say, you know, this might not be the full thing. That's a fairly safe move. The other piece that I would say is that it depends on what's your destination. If you are building a product that is meant to be sold in a high touch fashion, then you could probably evolve it and get the right feedback for a long while working with design partners and such and not actually launch it too much. I would still encourage you to put it in front of design partners very quickly versus just keeping it in the lab, but you can probably make two. If you're trying to build a product-led company, a product that would actually thrive based on its self-serve motion or have a big freemium motion, you have to actually 
actually see if the product is successfully promoting it and designing it. So it's about optimizing for learning, optimizing for feedback, not optimizing for moments. And in optimizing for feedback, the early go-to-market for SNIT was developer first, bottom up. So it's essentially the same go-to-market as for a, as for a consumer product. So when you're targeting individuals early on, what systems do you need to have in place to harness qualitative learnings on top of what your metrics show you? Yeah, so first of all, this is also SNIC's current demo. SNIC is a product-led company and we have a healthy and thriving freemium user base. And I think for developer tools, it's one of the key distinctive elements. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find a truly successful dev tooling company that isn't product-led. And ironically, you'd be hard-pressed to find an enterprise-oriented cybersecurity company that is product-led. So, so it was very important and continues to be a very important part of how we bring our product to market. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, to me, I'll take it back to this notion of optimizing for learning. If you are putting a product out there and you want to see if people use it or not, then you want to instrument their journey. In SNICS history, we've done some of that well and some of that pretty poorly, but it starts from just even with simple marketing analytics, Google Analytics, understanding, okay, who registered? So you might want to try and track users and understand if it's the same person coming back again or not. And, you know, define your funnel, understand the conversion steps that you want in the process. Subsequently, you want to understand their use of the product. You know, after that first phase of getting them to register to the product, you should build some theory about activation. What is the magic moment that someone has used your product and is now sort of seen the light, they're likely to stay. For Sneak early on, for instance, that was the fixed pull request. So the one level of it was finding a vulnerability. So that was a significant milestone. You've added a project, you found a vulnerability, we've provided value. But the true activation happened when you fixed the vulnerability with Sneak. Over time, you would want to measure that against actual statistics. Okay, fine. You think that fixing a vulnerability would back sort of long-term use of the product, but does the data actually sustain that? In Snake's case, the answer is yes. Within that process, you want to start identifying your users. And probably the most well-known term over here is PQL, a product qualified lead. So you want to identify within your users, which ones are good candidates for monetization. For Sneak, our initial approach was useful, but not optimal, uh, was mostly scoring based. So we just took the user, we tried to enrich what we know about them, uh, try to add information about their use of the product, how well, for instance, have they activated some location. And just each of these things, the company they work in, their title, their seniority, all added up some points. And if it crossed a certain threshold, we used HubSpot CRM at the time, it prompted a salesperson who chose whether to put them on some form of email sequence or try to reach out. We intentionally did not try to be self-serve at the time because optimizing for learning, we wanted to learn why they are here and we cared far less about efficiency. Over time, we've evolved into something a bit better, which is we switched to having a user profile. So instead of starting with the data points, we started with the questions. What do we want to know about this user? And then we used our data to the best that we could to answer those questions. And so by the time that PQL kind of uh, popped up, it wasn't just because their score added up. It was much easier to know what is the next step that the, the person should do. Now, one thing I was originally fearful of and proved very useful is that for some of these questions, if you don't know the answer, you could just ask. You could prompt the user and say, hey, are you here for your own personal use or are you here for a business? This is an example, for instance, of a very important question for Sneak. And while we can sometimes guess it, oftentimes we cannot. And users were not that anti-answering the questions on their own. Some would dismiss it. It wasn't mandatory, but if they did, it was very useful. So one is understand your funnel, understand the journey to it, what is a successful user, and then subsequently create this sort of scoring mechanism and methodology around who might purchase and start building your commercial slice. Extremely tangible and detailed. Let's kind of fade in to the company that SNCC 
technique has become, you know, you mentioned that you're one of very few cybersecurity companies that is bottom up. Why did you choose that go to market? Why wasn't top down possible or, or more scalable for you? So first, Sneak, Sneak does a pincer movement where we heavily rely on the bottom up motion and freemium adoption. But we also augment that with a very important outbound motion in which we talk to companies. And the best case scenario is, is one in which we talk to companies in which there is already a substantial usage. So sometimes we get from the user to the buyer internally through the organization by helping a, a champion get to the to the, the buying entity. And sometimes we do it by winning over developers on one side and then reaching out to security on the other and say, hey, did you know developers are already using this? Second is, it's important to understand why certain industries are product-led versus others that are not. So in the case of development tools with DevOps and with sort of the fragmentation, development teams have the choice of which tools they are using. And generally, if you're a JavaScript developer, you couldn't care less if I support PHP or not. It's not a cynical comment. It's not because you're a narrow-minded person. It's because it literally doesn't affect you. You're coding a JavaScript. What does it matter if, if I support PHP or not? And so the tools in those ecosystems have evolved to be deep, designed, attuned to that surrounding, and they better be amazing at it. Security already have a fragmented landscape of risks. They're trying to sort of chase all these different problems that might occur and mobilize the organization towards it. And it's just not feasible for them to now have a different solution for governing how they tackle a certain risk for every different director of engineering or engineering manager in the team. And so they naturally bias for breadth, even sometimes at the expense of being shallower. So for development teams, that bias is towards product-led. Well, for security, suddenly you need to appease and satisfy and fit the needs of a much larger audience. And so it lends itself to more of a top-down sale. Now, Sneak was intentionally, explicitly, and repeatedly stated to be a developer tooling company that provides security. Our whole reason for existence is this belief that security has to be embedded into the development process. If you want developers to use a solution, guess what? You need it to be a developer tool, not a security tool. And so we modeled after the developer tooling companies of the world. We modeled after uh, New Relic and GitHub and you know Heroku. And it was intentionally with blinders on. I had an advisor ask me a year plus in, uh, say a security person, if they come to your site, do they have a way to log in? And only then I realized that the answer was no, they did not have a way to log in. You had to have a GitHub user. And so we were very intentional on the belief that you know we're going to crash and burn before we pivot out of this. That the truly big challenge that we're taking on is demonstrating the developers will and embrace security if we build the right solution for them, the right company, the right product. Once you have that lens, I think it's pretty easy to see why we would go down the uh, the product-led route. Because we are focused on developers, we're able to satisfy the needs of these dev teams and prove ourselves in the organization through that product-led approach. And then once there's enough conviction, they can roll it out top-down as well. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Next, I want to jump a little bit ahead of schedule and talk about um, in 2019, You know, once you had spent four years at the CEO of SNCC, you brought on Peter McKay, who I think was a longtime friend of yours, and you moved into the, the role of president. So, so I want to start by asking, as a founding CEO, how do you know that it is the right time for you to step aside and hire a quote-unquote professional CEO? So fundamentally, this came down to three things. One, what do you want to do? And so for me, being the CEO of a large public company was never really my aspiration. You know, I see myself as a good leader and a mediocre manager. I think I'm quite good at product vision and the strategy setting, you know, the understanding of what is possible and how the market is moving. And I don't get as much satisfaction from managing people and hiring great people. I do enjoy that, but far less than the former. The second is that just because something is working doesn't mean it can get better. You know, 
I, I brought on Peter at the time that Snake was actually thriving. It was very much uh, in its uh, early uh, stages of the hyper growth and there was no real problem. And so while I was doing a apparently good job as CEO, my kind of core competency of that sort of product vision was not coming into play. And so I didn't think I was the best CEO the company could have. And I was certain that I'm not giving the company my best skill. The last piece was just around kind of seizing the moment. It, it's not often that you get an opportunity to have someone of Peter's caliber and someone who has had the history that I've had with Peter, you know, both I've known him for about 15 years prior. He was an investor and a board member at Snake and also in my previous startup from before, so he knew the business. And he was momentarily available <laughs> after finishing his sort of tenure at the previous company. And so there was a moment in time and I felt like it was the right thing long-term. And sometimes when it's the right thing long-term and there's a good opportunity, you need to seize it. And, and I would advise founders to just think about what do you want to do uh, moving forward? Is this your future? Do you want to grow a CEO? That's a founder privilege that you have to try as long as you're successful, as long as you're not failing in it to continue growing it. And when you say that you're a good leader and a, and a mediocre manager and you didn't feel like you were doing the best possible job that could be done as a CEO, what does that specifically mean? And by extension, what does an excellent external CEO hire bring in? What are the things Peter can do 10 times better than you could do? Look, there, there's a lot that goes into being a good manager. And there's a whole set of interesting uh, differences where I think at least at the scale phase, Peter is, is a better fit. You know, For example, when someone comes to me with a problem and a proposed solution, I scrutinize the solution. Well, Peter's focus is understanding how did the person reach that conclusion? And I think that's a more scalable approach because eventually, if he has faith that the person is making uh, the right steps in reaching a decision, then he can trust that person to make future decisions. Second is I get attached. I want everybody to like me and I like believing people and kind of having the benefit of the doubt. And as a result of that, throughout kind of my years as CEO, I've waited too long to, uh, to part ways with people or to sort of move them off roles. And, and the result of that is not good for, for anybody. Uh, Peter has a great knack at identifying when someone is sort of not on a trajectory in which they will succeed in the job and moving them off the role before they fail. And as a result of that, actually helping them continue succeeding in the company because the company is massive. And so even if you get demoted technically, right, if someone's placed above you, within moments, really, your job will still be as big as it was before and then continue to grow. But if you, like I did, wait too long, that person gets into a state of failure and it's very hard for them to snap out of that within the company. So those are just two of multiple properties that you want to do it. Absolutely. All right. I want to spend one question on the topic of acquisition. So I know that you've been on the other side of the table at Blaze and I think at a previous company as well. And at SNCC, you've acquired five companies in just the last two years. So in making those acquisitions, which lessons did you carry from having been on the other side of the table? So I think acquisitions are a very powerful muscle if you get them right, and they're very hard to get right. Uh, we've been fortunate enough that because I've been acquired three times, you know, Peter has been acquired and acquired acquired companies multiple times. I've acquired a couple of companies in my uh, in my past. All of those have given us a perspective on it and we knew not to underestimate the complexity involved. So I'd say once you get that right, what acquisitions help you do, even when you are a high execution organization like Sneak is, is move even faster because you get a group of great people into the company. You get to buy the time that they've already invested in it. And as a result, you run faster. When we acquire a lot of things come into play, first and foremost, we scrutinize the potential acquisitions and we're picky. You know, we talk to a ton of companies and there are very few that we actually eventually engage in acquiring. Second is we respect the companies that we acquire and we think of it as mergers. It's a, it's a big and small company, but we think of it as mergers. And in every acquisition, 
that we make, we try to look for things that are beyond the specific business case that we would get. When we acquired Deep Code in Zurich, really they unlocked our SNCC code product for static analysis of your code, but they also brought in a machine learning competency into the company such that we didn't have before. The manifold acquisition brought in some uh, proficiency around turning SNCC into an extensible platform and building a marketplace on top of it. You know, with FOSSID's uh, ability to understand unmanaged components in the system, understand binaries and audits and things like that. Every company that, that we've acquired brings with it not just a product and specific technology, but a competency. And then they become that core competency in the company. So they become a leader in the company. And that in terms maintains their sense of mission, maintains their drive, their passion, and respects their skill. For our customers, I think the key thing is that we are bringing those products together. We are very committed to continuously giving our users mm. cohesive experience, and we take the pain of spending time at the beginning integrating, which is not pleasant. It's a it's a dead time. It's a time in which you're not building maybe as much uh, new functionality, but we take that pain because long-term we want to satisfy the customers and ensure that they don't see the difference between an acquired piece of technology or one built in-house. I think if you do all of those and if you keep giving growth opportunities to the teams, then you can work well together. Makes a lot of sense. Then as a founder and as a leader, how do you judge when to say yes and when to say no? Fundamentally, most of the time you have more options than you have capacity to do. And so typically the most important question is what is the opportunity cost? Judging an idea on its own merits is just not enough. You have to ask, what would I not be able to do because I've said yes to this? The bigger you get and the more product market fit you have, ironically, like the more opportunities for distraction you get. And so that focus, that understanding of what's the opportunity cost and trying to find the things that are most valuable for you to do versus are they valuable or are they not valuable is the key competency. Okay. So judging opportunities on a relative basis. Um, Moving on, what have you found to be things that founders spend too much time on early on that don't actually make a difference? And then how about the inverse of that? What is essential to building an enduring company that founders underinvest in early on? It's a good question. I think I'll answer both of those in one, which is I think founders make the mistake of talking about their product. And that's not what matters. What matters is talking about the user's need. Like AI is a great example. All these companies that say, hey, we're solving X through AI. Like it doesn't matter if it's through AI. What matters is that you're solving X well. This is bad in messaging, but the worst thing that happens way too often is that it actually influences the roadmap. People get enamored with the capabilities that they offer and they forget to optimize for actually solving a problem. And so they get, they might build this amazing capability that solves some slice of a customer's need, but they do nothing around the mundane and yet also necessary capabilities to the right and to the left of that capability to actually satisfy a use case. And so I think almost everything around your product, everything about the definition has to be use case driven. If you have a freemium offering, which use cases are satisfied by the freemium and which ones are premium, not which features are available in freemium. That is the secondary conversation. Fantastic answer. Okay. And last question, this is actually something I end every interview with is what is one important truth about company building that most people would not agree with you on? I think the worst case scenario is not failing, but it's getting stuck. The worst case scenario is getting to a company that has 5 million in ARR and is just growing 20% and it's too good to walk away from, but it's not really what you signed up for. And so for me, that, that was the thing I was optimizing against. I would rather, again, go big or go home, try for something real than get stuck in those scenarios and then lose time, which as I said multiple times here, uh, is your most precious asset. I'm sure I can find a sizable 
reasonable number of or group of people that would disagree with that or certainly don't live by it. So so let's end there. Hey, thank you so much, Guy. So many tangible insights on you know, timeless insights on building companies. So it's a pleasure having you. Yep, thanks for having me on.